1: What does motion sound like? With Kizikans free shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com/socks.
0: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi. Hello. It's a
2: little girl.
0: <laughs> I brought you
2: pickles. We went to Junior's. Oh, hi. Hi, nice to you. nice to finally you? are interviewing me? I am. This is awesome. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I'm, I'm so, so sorry. 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 Of course you are. i so I can't believe I got in trouble right away. <laughs> I
1: love it. Right, right. I know what's so game. funny is this. i already recording. <laughs> yeah, so we've got Oh, we're I on? Okay.
2: <laughs> I do. Oh, good. I love it.
1: Hey, y'all. This is Represent, and I'm Aisha Harris. So that clip you just heard at the top of the show is a little outtake we unwittingly recorded when Pamela Adlon, who is the creator and star of the new FX series, Better Things, dropped by our studio to talk about her career and about the show. And (laughs) essentially what happened was that she showed up and she brought us pickles from Juniors. And no idea why, but she did. And they're delicious. It was great. She also immediately got shushed by one of the other producers in the studio because she was being too loud and it was distracting them from their recording across the hall. <laughs> and as you can tell, Pamela is a very effervescent character and a really, really fun personality. And I'm looking forward to sharing with you our surprisingly emotional conversation. But before we jump into that, we've got a brand new edition of Pre-Woke Watch. Watching. 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 Now, if you're just joining the show for the first time or happen to miss out on our episode from a few weeks back where we first introduced this segment, and you should definitely go back and listen to that one, pre-woke watching is what we define as the phenomenon of having once enjoyed or even loved a movie or TV series, only to realize after having become more informed and or open-minded that, in hindsight its politics were kind of screwed up. For this latest pre woke watching, I talked to my BFF, Mary, who I've known since we first did a student theater show together at Northwestern a decade ago. A lot has changed for us both since then. She's now a lawyer, and I obviously am no longer an aspiring performer. But one thing let's stays the same is our love for bantering about pop culture that comes off as super racist or sexist. Over a delicious brunch in a bougie black restaurant in bed I asked her to give me her quintessential pre-woke watching experience. about the movie or TV show that you used to love or like a lot and you realize now that it's kind of problematic
0: fucked up. All right, so the first one that I automatically thought of when you brought this to me was Pretty Woman. Listen, I, I appreciate this whole seduction scene you've got going, but let me give you a tip. I'm a sure thing. Okay, so I'm on an hourly rate. Can we just move along?
2: Somehow I'm sensing that this time problem is a major issue with you. Why don't we just get through that right now? Great, let's get started. How much for the entire night?
0: Stay here. <laughs> we couldn't afford it. Try me. $300. Done.
2: Thank you. Now we can relax. And
0: I know that I was probably a little slow to realize that it was sexist, but you have to understand I watched it when I was five because my sister rented it. She convinced my mom that it was like totally fine, not just like a girl making it in show business or something like that. And so I watched it at five, and it's obviously very problematic because Julie Roberts is, well, a hooker. She's also not a very convincing hooker. No, she is not. She is a very, very bad hooker. And there's this one scene that's absolutely ridiculous where she does this, like, Richard Gere offers to put her up in a penthouse up in New York. He's going to leave. And... She gets sad and is upset by this. And he turns to her out on the balcony and says, you know...
1: I've never treated you like
0: a prostitute. And he walks out and Julia Roberts with a tear, you know, dripped down her, the side of her cheek and she goes... I just did. You just did. And it's ridiculous because, <laughs> no, he's been paying you the entire time. No. Do, do you feel, though, as though that's even just not a
1: movie that should be aspiring... Like, don't you think it could make a young impression for
0: Want to aspire to be a hooker? So funny you should mention that because when I saw it and I was five, again, I really want to point out I was five. I saw it and my sister had fast forwarded through all the promiscuous scenes, so all I saw was Julia Roberts ending up in a fancy place with Richard Gere. And so after I saw it, I went around for maybe a week or two and switched wanting to be a rocket scientist to being to wanting to be a prostitute. And I, my parents didn't really know what to do with this because I don't think they wanted to explain to a five-year-old what that meant, Yeah. but yeah, I definitely went around for a while saying that. I don't do that anymore. Well,
1: here we are. You, We are now approaching 30, both you and I, and you are neither a
0: rocket scientist or a prostitute. No, I am not, and I am a little sad about the rocket scientist thing. A little bit. Okay.
1: So that's Mary's pre-woke watching story. And since we first introduced this segment, we've got a few of you folks sharing your own. So please keep doing so and send them to us at Slate Represent on Facebook and Twitter. If, like me, you're a fan of Louis C.K.'s off-kilter dramedy series, Louis, you're inevitably familiar with Pamela Adlon, who played Pamela, his recurring love interest, on the show. She now has a series of her own, the semi-autobiographical Better Things, which she co-created with C.K. She plays Sam Fox, a single mother raising three girls while dating and being a working actress in L.A. And if you haven't had a chance to check it out, I highly suggest you do. It's a show that gets better and more surprisingly intense as each episode goes on, especially with regards to San's relationships with her daughters and As you know, Pamela recently joined us in the studio, and to set the mood, she dimmed the lights well Pamela, we're here in Brooklyn, and you dimmed the lights, so it's very' we've got a very sensual mood going on right now. it's great I love it
2: yes i always i I always adjust the lighting. It's not because like. Of the way that my I don't want my face to look. It's just because I like it to be
1: mellow. No, it feels great. Yeah, it, I you know I I think we should maybe do this from now on. It has like a nice mood. So congrats on season two. Thank I know you. it's not it's not like news at this point. It's not new, but I'm excited that the show got picked up. It's yeah, very exciting.
2: That was amazing. I was in a basement in Midtown Manhattan. I was uh, directing plays for Animus Theater Company. And at 3.30, I was supposed to be getting a call from FX, and I told my stage manager, at 3.30, I have to come out of the basement to to get this phone call. Mm -hmm. And it was an unbelievable thing, because John Langrath's on the phone, he's like, "Uh, we're picking up your show. And it, it only had aired two episodes. He said, "We're picking you guys up and Donald's show, Atlanta. Yeah, that's great." And and I John was Blen- like,
1: John Lengraf, he's a uh, FX president. Yeah, yeah,
2: and he's the visionary mastermind, and he. Um, he said, you know what, it just makes sense and let's go. And we're so thrilled and excited. And I kind of just was like, Yay. Everybody was screaming. And I barely screamed. And then this uh stage door guy comes over and he goes, You cannot raise your voice to that level here. So it's just a, what so it's a repeat of what just happened in here. <laughs> I get in trouble everywhere I go. <laughs> it's great. And now I have a show.
1: <laughs> well, I'm so glad you have the show. And I would love to to, for you to just talk a little bit about how the show even came to fruition because you've been around for a while now you were on you know Lucky Louie and Louie mm-hmm. you've also done a ton of voice work and you're you're a vet at this point and so how do how did we get to this point where you have your own show and you are centering it sort of based on your own life
2: well it you know my dad was a writer and a producer so I grew up I literally grew up on sound stages since I was a baby and then, um, you know, I got the bug, of course, uh, because I wanted to to do what my dad was doing. And really, the way that I saw it was uh, was acting, because I saw other kids acting. When we first moved to California when I was 10, there were kids who were acting. And I thought, oh, I want to do that. You mean you don't have to go to school? You can act <laughs> and not go to school. And so I kept working. And there were different phases, um, you know. And then I did, like, big stuff when I was a teenager. I was on The Facts of Life, this show that was, like, huge. Yeah. And and then, you know, work kind of goes away. um, But your face never stops being in shows. Like, people think you're continuously working, but you're not. And so you have to pay the bills. And so I would get regular day jobs and things like that. And then work kind of dried up a little bit. And then... Somehow, I started hitting in voiceover, and I remember that I ended up doing an episode of Rugrats.
1: I loved Rugrats. Rugrats
2: was the best. (laughs) There was kind of like a booth, which was a holding place for the actors, and uh, Chris Summer was in there, E.G. Daly, Kath Susie, Chris Kavanaugh, Rest Soul, Mm. and... Uh, There was a phone there, and they all used the phone because this is pre-cell phone days. Yeah, And I just looked at Cree and EG, and I thought, I want this. This is so awesome. Like, this would be if I could get a regular job. And then they kind of kept hiring me for a couple of episodes of Rugrats, and— Then I booked my own series, and from then on I was doing animation, which thank God I did because I wasn't getting any on-camera acting stuff. And then there was a time there I couldn't pay my rent, and I'd already been, you know, in big TV shows and in movies and whatever, couldn't pay my rent. Had to sell my record collection, had to borrow money from friends, I was on unemployment, and then I started working again, and... You know, I would do different jobs, guest stars, independent movies. I became a mommy. And then I would be, like, uh, you know, in a trailer doing, like, an independent movie. And it would be an hour. I wouldn't work. Two hours, three hours. And I'm like, what am I doing? I have a baby. I'm sitting here. I'm getting paid $5 to be in this movie that's never going to see the light of day. Mm. And... uh. So I kind of um, stepped away from that, and then I got lucky enough to get King of the Hill. Right. So King of the Hill became, you know, just everything. And it became, uh, you know, my bread and butter and a lot of people's bread and butter. I was able to, you know, support my family and um, take care of my mom. You know, you kind of see windows of opportunity in your life, or you don't see them. But they're there. Mm. And you've got to be aware of them. You've got to know when a door is closing and another one is opening. And the one that's opening isn't going to be open forever. You've got to kind of take note of where you are in your life and take advantage of the opportunities. So I thought, I don't think King of the Hill is going to go on forever. And It went on for a while, though. Like, it right? did. We like, did 13 seasons. Yeah. But um it was like touch and go. So towards the end I started auditioning for stuff and then I I got back on camera and then I ended up doing this show called Unscripted, which uh was Grant Heslov, George Clooney and Steven Soderbergh did this show for HBO. We did ten episodes. I did the last five. And it was my cherry popping into the world of digital mm. and uh, them, you know, film not running out and being in a take that lasted 20 minutes. And it, we all improvised but played a version of ourselves. And then Louis C.K. had seen that show. And then I was cast as Kim in Lucky Louis, which is a longer story which involves Phil Rosenthal, who created Everybody Loves Raymond. And I was a writer on a show called Down the Shore that I was on, um, which I got fired from. And then um, Mike Royce was Louie's partner on Lucky Louie. And he said, who do you think could play this woman? He said, there's this one woman who's like the funniest person I've ever known. She got fired from my the show that I was on because she had no tits. <laughs> And then
1: that's something that comes up a lot, of uh, you not having tits. Yeah. <laughs> and I've noticed in your. In I know your I say <laughs> it.
2: I said it at the Friars Club last night, and this man came up and he told me that story. He goes, My wife has less tits than you. She's going to be so excited because she <laughs> used to look at your tits, Unlucky Louie, and say, I wish I had that amount of tits.
1: <laughs> See, you want what you can't have, right?
2: It's true. You know. But I never wanted it. Yeah. I mean, I feel fine. I'm 34B you awesome. know it's like whatever tits or whatever so um it's it's a metaphor for uh an ideal i mm-hmm. guess for women and whatever yeah um so i ended up doing lucky louie and um you know uh, collaborating with louie on different stories in that show because my my value to him was also the fact that i was a mom mm. on this show and so Later on, when we didn't get picked up, we created a show of our own. We were trying to do like a version of Lucky Louie for network without Mm -hmm. F-bombs and whatever for CBS. And and it just did not work. And then we took it to Fox and they didn't want it. And so then he created Louie. And, you know, his whole, it's the story is so famous that they they didn't give him a note or touch him. They just gave him money to make the pilot. He said, you're going to be a producer and uh, contribute to my show as a writer. And I was like, all right. And so uh, that really nurtured my voice as a writer and a producer, which was an unbelievable thing being the daughter of a writer and producer. So then later on, Louis told me that John Langreff had said, we want to do a show for a woman. And who would you recommend? And Louis said me. And I was like, are you fucking kidding? I can't do that because I was doing Californication at the time and working on Louis, doing my animation. But above all, raising my three daughters on my own, which I has been, you know, for years. So that's the number one. Mm. So then Louis would be like, okay. Time's ticking. Let's go. Let's go. And this is
1: over several years. Right? This
2: it, it's yeah. true. And, and so I had to start saying no to some real work and opportunities for me as an actor in order to pioneer the show and where it is now. And so you do. You have to make sacrifices and stop actually getting things in order to make your future And then it became the time and I started writing and we delivered the script. I, you know, the show was, you know, kind of uh, cobbled together. Louis pieced it together with me and then we gave it to FX and they they loved it. We made a pilot. And then um, after the pilot, John Langreff wanted to speak to me and we had a we had an hour conversation and he called me. He said, this is essentially your dime. He said, I want you to tell me where you see this show, what you see the show being, where this world is going to be. Tell me about this person. And it was an unforgettable phone call. He said, I'll let you know if I'm going to pick it up, you know, after we had that talk. And then uh, he announced it at the TCA's.
1: Now, this is the first show at, that FX is produced. I can't believe it's taken this long, but it's the first one that has a female protagonist. It's about a female female lead. And within the show, I see a lot of of your struggle with, your trying to juggle your job and then also trying to be the best mother and also the best daughter that you can be, and you struggle with that. Do you think that part of that was you feeling as though you wouldn't be a good mother if you took it up at that time to, yeah. to do that?
2: You know, I I knew... At a certain point, i I didn't ever want to take on more than I could handle. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't want to have so so many plates in the air that the plates are going to break. So I was trying to be really smart about my time. You know, um, my time is so valuable. To my daughters, which I have three of them. How old are they now? Um, they're all teenagers. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> I know. <laughs> white knuckle time. <laughs> but, um, you know, my time is so valuable to them. Mm. And then, you know, it's... You know, I think about my mom. Does she get any time from me? I think about, you know, my friends. Do they get any time from me? You know, even little things that they ask, you know, can you sit down and have a coffee or whatever? It's it's just a huge sacrifice when you get into something like this because you have to be writing mm-hmm. is the number one thing. You know, so then when you're working, you know, the job ends. You go home at midnight my kids are all still awake. They have school the next day. You know, it's there's no kind of downtime. Right. So you just I try to be smart with my time. And and then I know uh people are going to say but you but you have to take time for yourself. <laughs> You've got to take time to reflect. I do. I get my time. I get mm-hmm. my time with my friends and I do that. But it, for me, it's a blessing to work. Mm-hmm. Work is everything to me. And it never mattered what work I was doing. I just wanted to work. Earning money and working is everything. And And it's everybody's right and it's everybody's privilege. And I just, ugh, I, it, it, that to me is the be-all, end-all. But the fact that I'm making work for, for myself mm-hmm. is B-A-E.
1: Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about sort of the dynamic that your character Sam has with her daughters, because it's it's funny. I've been watching it and so much of it rings true to my experience with my own mother and what that was like, especially in my teenager, teenage years, Yeah, especially with Max, the oldest daughter. Mm-hmm. You're in that point in your relationship where you're grasping for different things and ways of to be intimate with one another. Yeah, I was never like this as a teenager, but I think it's interesting that she's like, she wants you to. Buy her pot, she wants you to know about all the things she's doing.
2: Yeah. And you're like, la, la 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 la, don't tell me these things. Right. How about this? No, no, Max, I'm not gonna get you pot. It's
1: so easy, Mom. You oh. get a prescription, you just have to be oh. 18.
2: Max, honey, can we just go back to the regular hard things like school supplies? You should be happy, I'm honest with you. I could just get it and not tell you. Oh yeah. Well, that might be a little better. Seriously? Yeah, these things are normal, but you should be ashamed of them. And you also just
1: want her to appreciate what you do and 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 the time you take and, and the fact there's a there's a great scene you have where after she's thrown a party and you're you know you're punishing you're mad about it um and she kind of throws out this excuse that you know dad says that you you have all this money and you're always working and you're like that's not you don't understand what i do
2: you had a party no it wasn't a party in any way you left i had to work you don't have to work mom what how do you think we ever have anything you work because you want to be famous
1: Dad told me, you have tons of money and savings and he is living like
2: shit. This is so unfair that I think I'm gonna pass out. Oh my
0: God, yeah, Mom, you're the victim. Everything is unfair.
2: Max, you had a party and you wrecked the house. You're not the first kid to do that. It's not the end of the world. Then why are you acting like it is? Because you make me get this mad before you even look up from your phone! And you act like your shit don't stink and you shouldn't answer for anything. But you know what, baby? Your shit does stink. And your father lives better than I do! And I'm paying for all of it!
1: Can you talk a little bit more about how that relates? Because you are a single mother. So is that something that's drawn from your personal life? Do you feel as though a lot of the times like you are carrying all of this weight um, in terms of juggling everything?
2: Absolutely. You know, it's... um, There was a time where I was very, very low. I was really, really uh, sad. It was a depressing time. And it was when, you know, after the separation and divorce, and I just kind of felt like the whole world uh, was—it was too much. Mm -hmm. It was too much for me. And I was actually on a plane that we were about almost an hour into the flight from JFK to Los Angeles, and um, the guy who was sitting next to me said, I don't think there's dinner on this flight because it was a late flight, and it smelled like cooking. And the pilot burst out of the cockpit and smoke filled the cabin and the windshield had caught on fire. Oh, wow. And so I was sitting in this row of people. We were in the second row of this flight and I was deeply into my divorce and I just grabbed the. The man to my right, I just grabbed his forearm and I went, oh, shit. And he starts – he was on line with his wife and he just starts typing pray for us. And I'm like, all right. All right, this is jumping off right now. And I thought – I checked in with myself and I said, my girls aren't on this flight. Okay, this is just going to be easier for everybody if I just – if it's me and I perish now – They'll all split up my money. My ex-husband isn't going to come after me anymore. I just had that moment, mm-hmm. you know, um, that I, I just felt like I don't have to fight anymore. <laughs> I yeah. don't know if that <laughs> relates to what you were saying. But, you know, things feel like things can get to be too much and too overwhelming. Yeah. Things can get really dark and really bad and really fucked up. And you're going to wake up and have a new day. Mm-hmm. But you need to make those opportunities for yourself.
1: Yeah. And I definitely think that comes across in your relationships, uh, especially with Max. It's, you know, there's obviously a lot of back and forth and even the, the sort of the, the look or the anger before either of you have even said anything to one another. But then there's also, you know, there's there are moments where Max finally lets her guard down and she's, you know, willing – you guys reach an understanding, like, for the Halloween episode where she's yeah. upset. And, you know, all three of you – or all four of you get together and you hang out and watch a scary movie. Like, I get that yeah. sense from from the show. It yeah, it's,
2: it's important. It's like Max could be, be doing something horrible and then, you know, like an hour later she could be like, hey – You know, do you want to hang out? Do you want, mom, I want to talk to you. It's just teenage hormones. (laughs) Yes. You're not owning the last thing you did forever. Otherwise, nobody could uh, keep going with their lives. Mm -hmm. Things are are massive. It's why I said in my pilot, uh, I wish for one boring day. You know, it's like, could there be zero events in one day? Just everything just smooth, Mm -hmm. you know, but that's the way it is, especially, you know, when you're in a family. Yeah. And shifting
1: gears a little bit to talk a little bit more about your character in terms of the way in which she's shown on the, on the on the show as a woman and as an actress, there's this great monologue that you have to Jeff, who is... Sonny's husband. Sonny's husband. So your best friend, Sonny, uh-huh. she's married to basically... a Piece of shit. Yeah, a piece of shit. You yeah. call him that, to his face, I think. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and, like, that monologue struck me... There, It worked on, like, several levels. And I think one of the things that I picked up on was the way in which you tell him, you know... The reason why she is the way she is now and she doesn't necessarily feel as as confident and as good as she can is because she's with someone like you who drags her down. And he's he, his response is, for, well, his first response is, well, you suck a lot of dicks. Yes. And it's like, oh, uh, so sophomoric and childish. And then his next response is, you know, well, I can't believe you said that to me. and. I feel like the whole show, throughout the show, you're, you are sort of pushing the boundaries of, of what women are supposed to say and how, yeah. how it might make other people uncomfortable. And I'm curious as to, like, how did you get to that point for yourself? Or are mm-hmm. you like that in real life? You know,
2: I used to scuff it up with people when I was younger. Mm-hmm. I would fight for the underdog and I would I would get into physical fights with people. And then I just... I couldn't control myself basically. <laughs> so if if something upset me or um if I saw some horrible injustice happening, I would get involved. And then, you know, I had my first daughter and there was an issue with somebody in another car and I was I was carrying her and she was 6 weeks old. She was an infant. And um ended up yelling at the driver and I went to have my checkup with my OBGYN and came back to the car with my infant baby and my car was keyed from front to back. And I went through this whole parking lot looking for the car and I wrote like eight drafts of a letter and it started out with, (laughs) fuck you, bitch, you are going to pay. And then I was like, that's too harsh. (laughs) And then I did a draft two, draft three. And finally, at the end, I was like, please calm down. This is a medical parking lot. I was carrying my baby. And then I thought about it and I said, you know what? I'm not going to ever get involved with anything in road rage. And I am swearing off that shit because everybody's strapped in L.A. Mm-hmm. You cannot get into it with anybody. I'm a mom now. I started just thinking about things in that way. I still get riled up like if I see something going on, it makes me crazy inside. yeah, so you know, I'm able to kind of relive that in Sam, stuff that's dormant in Pamela now yeah. you know?
1: <laughs> it, it sound it sounds like it once in in a way, once it became just not about you and you had to think of another human life that depends on you, that was sort of when you realize, okay, maybe I need to tone it down a little bit. But, I mean, you're still... I feel like you still got that fire. At least Sam does. Yeah. I mean, oh, I still got the fire.
2: (laughs) I still got the fire. But, you know, I don't get as upset. I think the only time I can get upset in my life is my kids. Mm -hmm. My kids could really get me upset because... Everything is wrapped up in them. And there's this quote that my friend Liz told me. And she was like my first mom friend. Her son is 25 now. And she it, she said, you're only as happy as your unhappiest child. And that's really true. Mm. Like if one of your kids is tripping, depressed, anxiety, anything, you kind of can't feel okay until everybody's all right. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah
1: you mentioned just now that you were sort of like a scrappy kid and you, yeah. you did a lot of fighting and you played a lot. You've played a lot of tomboys uh, throughout your career. Yeah. And also like when you were Bobby Hill on yeah. on uh, King of the Hill, you're also a, the voice of a boy or at least a boy character. Yeah. It sounds like something you sort of already were, but did it feel to get typecast in that way in your younger years? Did that bother you? Because this industry is so, wrapped up in especially for women like how you look. For
2: me it was very empowering because mm-hmm. I feel comfortable in that world. I talked to Terry Gross mm-hmm. for the first time like 5 or 4 years ago and she pointed out that the whole first part of my career I was playing boys on camera and on stage. And then I started doing it in animation. And it's just it's it's uh, it's my comfort zone. I feel like a lady guy. I don't want to offend anybody, but I call myself a straight lesbian. I mean, it's like, it's, that's just what I feel like. Mm -hmm. I love women, but I also love dick. So (laughs) I can't, I don't know what to say. You know, it's like, there's, everything is everything. It doesn't have to be categorized. But in terms of that, that's my comfort. I like being kind of butch
1: yeah and i think that that also comes through in the character of frankie who's the middle child and not that this is like to be clear i'm not equating her identity with tomboyishness because it seems clear that she's more of a gender gender neutral that's right person but i think we've come a long way now because you know when you were playing tomboys and and even the role you had on the night court when I think yes. when it's revealed oh God. when it's revealed that you're yeah you're, you're actually a girl even though you yeah. y- they thought you were a boy the whole time it's like it's sort of like this big reveal but with Frankie it's just like it's sort of you know at first when I was watching it the first episode I thought oh it's it's I thought I thought it was a boy because that's how you know yeah we, all, we have our per- perceptions perceptions yeah and then it was like oh no she's actually she's anatomically yeah you
2: know. this for me is the triumph of working with FX mm-hmm. and not having a writer's room and that kind of thing because I don't have to vet any of it and I don't need to point anything out. It's like, okay, I say I have three daughters, but it looks like a boy, but that's fine. And also, she's not identifying shit. She's yeah. 12 years old. You know what I mean? So she's just dressing like Buster Keaton and she's got short hair and... um I work the the actress who plays her Hannah Alleygood, Good. I said, okay, you know, I mean, she's from Alabama. This is a kid from the Bible Belt, mm. and I'm throwing her right into the frying pan. I'm like, dude, you're playing an LA kid. You're exposed to a lot, you know. And we, you know, she worked really hard, and she and her family worked really hard, and they. They had to eventually kind of come to terms with some of the things that the way the season played out and some of the language. Mm -hmm. And um, it was an amazing process. And it was a lot of work that this kid did. And I said, I want you to just think about not being Hannah. I want you to think about the way you walk. And I want you to think about the way you speak. And I want you to think about your wrists. And I want you to think about the way you stand And I don't want you to put your hands on your hips. I just want it to be no comment. I kind of just wanted her to be like this alien. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, um, you know, when she's 12 years old, when kids are kids, they're not deciding anything. Mm -hmm. Just let me be who I am. When my youngest daughter and my middle daughter, they both went through drastically short haircut phases to me, they're beautiful girls. There's no doubt. Every time my daughters have short hair, everybody say, "Hey man, what can I get you?" if like we're in a restaurant or whatever. And I mean, she could even be wearing lipstick and they're like, "All right, buddy. Okay, brother." And I'm like, "All right. Clearly <laughs> it's not a young man, but it's fine." And you know, um my youngest daughter is unbelievable and she just beams. She loved that. Mm. My middle daughter went through um, a phase where she was, like, gender dysmorphic. Like, it was not tomboy. Mm. It was Target, boys department, corduroys, polo shirts, braces, bifocals, and just, like, not sexy tomboy, not girly tomboy. She was just that. Mm. Now she looks at pictures and she's pissed at me. She's like, mom! Mom! <laughs> Why did you let me? I'm like, I was letting you be the thing you were being. (laughs) Yeah,
1: sometimes we We don't like that.
2: (laughs) It's so funny. (laughs) We're damned if we do and
1: damned if we don't. Yeah, yeah. So my last question, which is the question I ask all of my guests, is when is the last time you saw something, TV show, movie, where you felt as if you were represented in some way?
2: That's such an interesting question because... I don't relate personally to the things that resonate with me. Mm -hmm. I mean, the show catastrophe. Yes. I think is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Um, I relate to the, the way that they're talking to each other and just the brutal honesty and how funny it is, Mm -hmm. um, is inspirational to me. You know, I, I'm, I'm completely blown away by that show. Yeah. Um, And, you know, in terms of stuff that moves me, I mean, I, I, you know, went crazy for season one of Mr. Robot. Nothing about that I can relate to, but Mm -hmm. just the art Mm -hmm. of it. The movie Force Majeure, which is like this Swedish movie that I can't relate to anything, but the, the acting and the writing and the... Cinematic aspect of it, incredible. But I hope that my show can be that for people mm-hmm. and that I can cross over into different worlds and it's not just moms and it's not just girls. And it's, you know, young men are writing to me and older guys and people are writing me, hey, I'm a 40-year-old I'm man. I live in Mexico. I don't relate to anything. I'm a puddle after every show.
1: Mm.
2: And, um, you know, uh, th- that's my hope, you know, for my kids and their friends who I become a mommy to all of my daughter's friends. I live to inspire and elevate them, and my daughters roll their eyes while their friends are reaching out to me, saying, "Hey, Mama Pamela, can I get a few minutes with you?" I mean, it's just like on better things, like
1: you're the yeah. That's very right, similar. with Paisley. Yeah, with that Paisley. was Just on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That episode where you take them to the concert. Max is like embarrassed by you, but Paisley's just like, "Your
2: mom's cool." You know what? Can I read you something? Yeah. Okay. This is. This is my um, oldest daughter's friend uh, texted me last night, and I think that it would be very okay with her if I read this. She said, are you home? Can I come over soon when you're not busy and vent to you? Um, uh, Everything bottles up sometimes when I'm at home, and I value your opinion and listening. I just want you to know that your daughters are so lucky to have you, and you are one of the strongest and bravest women out there. You don't take shit from anyone, but you Mm -hmm. also offer empathy to everyone. I love you so much, and you really are the best mom in the whole world. And I don't know why any person on Twitter would tell you otherwise. (laughs) You make me want to open up because you show people it's okay. I love you, and I'm very thankful that I know you, Mama Pamela.
1: Aww. That's so
2: sweet. It killed me. Ugh. I'm crying now. I
1: know I can see. But <laughs> I'm almost crying too. It
2: kills me. Yeah. But that's everything to me. So, I mean, and and if people can relate and respond and uh it's even better and my daughters will eventually stop rolling their eyes at me. <laughs> yeah.
1: Did you ever stop rolling your eyes at your mother?
2: Um, you know what? I don't think I did a lot of eye rolling at my mother mm. when I lived with her. I do it now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, mom.
1: I mean, I feel like those really. I I. Sorry, mom too. Sometimes I still roll my eyes at her, but I love her. It's she's, okay. She's great. It's okay, and she rolls her eyes at me. It goes. Of course, she does. Well, thank you so much, Pamela. Thank for, you for guys. coming on the show, and and Ooh. I'm looking forward to season two. You don't thank have to. You tell us what happens if, unless you want to I don't but. know yet <laughs> are you are you in the process of writing it now I am yeah awesome well yep. so looking forward to seeing what else thank happens thank you so much
2: Aisha and thanks for the pickles you're welcome
1: <laughs> all right y'all That's all for today. Many thanks to Pamela for being such a great guest and for the pickles. You can find links to the things we touched on in the show notes. And as always, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Megaphone, Stitcher, or any other place you find your podcasts. Remember, if you haven't done so and you're loving the show, please rate us on iTunes. We really appreciate the support. And the holidays are, well, they're here. So give the gift of Slate Plus to another Slate fan in your life. They'll receive all the benefits of membership, like ad-free podcasts, bonus podcast segments, and access to our Slate Academies. It's also another way to support Slate's independent journalism. So give Slate Plus today at slate.com slash give plus. Represent is produced by the lovely and awesome Faralyn Williams. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Liptai. Andy Bowers is Chief Content Officer of Panoply. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Slate to Represent. And the music you're hearing is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. Until next time.